So massive thanks for listening to this recording of a panel discussion focused on co-living and the apart hotel sectors. Now this uh, recording, the panelists include Evan Main Donald of Melt Property, Robert Godwin of the Lamington Group, and Stuart Scott of Co-Living Spaces. You're also joined by Daryl Norcott from Lendwell. And the person who's doing the questions is Aaron Yehara. Now, do note that I forgot to press the record button straight away, so you do miss out a few minutes. I always recommend that you do join us on the meets themselves live, and that way you can also do the breakout rooms after the panel discussion. Thank you. For this space, so you have terms from extended stays, service accommodation, apart hotels, for Airbnbs, you've got short stay, long, longer stay variations of co-living model, apart hotels, hotels, you, you've got a huge range. And ultimately, I think as, as sectors and, and this particular space is developing, there's definitely more um, you know, clear, well, um, sort of, I suppose, more sort of minute sort of definitions or, or, or offers um, within within the space. Um, sort of all companies have become a lot more, the market's become a lot more specialized, basically, in creating these little um, micro niches. Um, but, you know, in the consumer's eyes, there's a huge amount of confusion. And I think, you know, in a par hotel, which, which in theory, sort of, sort of, if you sort of think about the words, it's very functional. It's got a hotel with apartment facilities. But in reality, um, people coin that term over a huge range of types of, sort of quality and actual offer and service. And some units will have a full kitchen. Some will have a tiny kitchenette. Some will have a... You know, concierge downstairs. Some will have a full lounge. Some will have F and B. Some won't. Some will have a guy who just gives you the key of the door. Um, some will have you know services and, and some, some you know will do cleaning, cleaning on a daily basis and some on a weekly basis. From a consumer's point of view, it's actually very very confusing. And so, um, you know, whilst we're all sort of, I think the sector is basically finding it's finding itself in terms of identifying what is um, you know, what is what are these uh, these definitely these terms and uh, it's quite confusing. I think. Um, so that's why we, when we were sort of evolving our products, we, we actually found that we were pushing a hell of a lot of the sort of the hotel uh, services and a lot of the experience that we wanted to sort of draw out from the best of hotels and put them into the sort of the service department model and combine it. But because ho- apart hotels, as a word, is, is quite functional, you've got facilities with bits and pieces, um, we, we, that's when we step back and say, oh, actually, we go a lot further than a typical hotel. It's called an average apart, sorry, average apart hotel in the UK. And that we, we, that's where we want to create our own space. And that's where we find the term home hotels, which for us, um, you know, really basically picks up on all of the apart hotel facility um, sort of functions, but then goes a next layer on top, which is all this sort of emotive connection that you get with the feelings of home. Um, and that just puts us in a slightly different box. It means that there's another category which we're trying to define and lead. Uh, and we add, we know, so it adds to sort of a little bit of dilution and confusion of it. But, you know, if we can separate ourselves, we can really own that, define it, uh, and really sort of specialize in that field and, and go forward. But um, I think from a consumer's point of view, which is what we're sort of focused on, um, there's still work to do. I think it's come a long, long way in the last sort of five, six years uh, in terms of defining it. And Airbnb has been a huge advantage, a huge help to the industry. But, allowing people to experience different types of staying away or uh, on, a, on a short term or medium term, giving people more options. Um, but there is still a little bit of way to go. And, I, you know, the clearer people can be, or, you know, us ourselves operators owners can be in our own product, and the clearer what we offer, uh, the better it is for um, consumers and therefore sort of, you know, growth in the, in the future. Okay, so thank you very much, Robert. Just as I was trying to draw this down <laughs> you put a dynamite under it and exploded it further but we'll we'll go through the panel and we'll go through but that was very very useful uh, 
quick whistle-stop tour as to the evolution as to why this question has been asked in the first place. So, Evan, do you have anything to add or subtract? I have a lot, have a lot to add. This is a really interesting area. Um, but just I want to build on what, what Stuart and Robert have said. Um, as pro property professionals, we, we tend to think about things in terms of uh, use classes. You know, is it C1, is it C3, is it an HMO? Uh, you know, we give things names and put them into categories. But as Robert rightly noted, consumers don't think that way. Um, what they think about is what service they want. Um, you know, so is it a hotel? Is it a longer stay with a kitchenette? Um, is it um, somewhere where they might stay for two or three months? Perhaps that's co-living with some, some particular services. Do they want to stay somewhere longer, which, which really takes you into built to rent? Or do they actually want to own something, which takes you into ownership? So I guess what I'm really trying to say is that, that what we have in the living space is a spectrum of different use classes. And, and I think the thing that's really interesting about what Room 2 do is they're sort of blurring the, the space in a way between a home and, uh, a longer, and a longer stay hotel, an apart hotel. I think if we, if we think about the differences between co-living and HMO, the way that I see it is that, that co-living is, is essentially HMO at scale. And in the, in the, in the apart hotel market, apart hotels are essentially serviced accommodation at scale. Um, the, the two aim to deliver very similar things. And I suppose the, the way that I see things going in both markets is because you do get economies of scale with co-living and with apart hotels is that they are likely to be able to offer consumers services that they want more cost effectively and, and, be, and indeed better services than, than the HMO or, or serviced accommodation model. So I think we're seeing a very interesting evolution of the market. The planning classes that sit behind it certainly don't keep up. And, um, in some ways, that's where the opportunity lies. Fantastic, Evan. And so, Daryl, the money man, how do you come to something and decide what it is to fund my, it? My wife doesn't call me the money man yet. I'm kind of I'm working <laughs> up for that one. But um, no, so I, I've spent, yeah, I'd say probably from about kind of 2015 ish time, I've spent many years obsessing about HMOs, SA, and how to fund them and the various kind of implications. And, one of the things I will say is that this is a really complicated asset class to manage the funding properly and valuations are a little bit all over the place depending on what you do to the property that might seem like small changes that make So that's kind of, it's a part of the market I've spent a lot of time on. So just to pick up on a couple of things that, that other people on the panel have said. So Stuart mentioned about co-living being a sort of change and an evolution of the HMO product. So. We're going to constrict that a little bit because that, that's not quite how I see it. So for me, HMOs is an extremely broad name for a, a wide range of different sorts of properties. And I think we're all very guilty, as Evan said, of putting things into categories. So do it yourself, um, myself, and lenders do it definitely a lot. When actually it's not about that, it's about tenant demand. And for me, HMOs serve a few different tenant demands. So there's an element and there's part of the market that serves social housing. They need a certain finish and style and configuration of property. There's a part of the market that serves students. And again, students have their own needs, their own sensitivities and, and their own ways of managing those sorts of businesses are, are needed. Then there's a part of the market which is affordability driven. So low cost HMOs where the tenant need is really around cost and it's around rent because essentially they're, they're sort of priced out of a one or two bed flat in that market. And then there is a, a newer part of the market for co-living, which is higher end, tends to be professionals, tends to be younger, younger people. And, and the tenant motivation there is different. It's not affordability driven. 
it's driven by wanting to be part of a, a community and part of a, a usually kind of forging a new life in a new town or something like that after you finished university and a lot of those people come from a mindset of living jointly with with others anyway when they were at uni and they're student-led so it's kind of a transition period for them and again they have different needs so i think the hma market hma market's broad and, and the key thing for any investor and developer is just having absolute clarity about which part of that market you're targeting and what your tenants really want and then designing property to meet those needs as best as it can, which is where a lot of the innovation comes from. And I'd, I'd echo the same sort of thinking with uh, Apart Hotels and SA, although I did love Evan's phrase about Apart Hotels being SA on, on scale, because I think that is incredibly true. I, I think SA is not in a very sustainable shape, a lot of that market, in my opinion, and with lots of kind of breaching of planning and breaching of freeholder consents and all sorts of stuff that goes on. And, and I think Apart Hotels is a way of kind of formalising and making that sustainable long-term business. Fantastic points there. And um, for, for anyone who's not following, I'd just like to sort of almost simplify certain elements uh, just because we, we, we seem to have a bit of a tension between and um, what the planning classes are, what the consumer actually understands, and then we're looking at the mix of the length of stay services and the amount it costs to actually to participate in that, either as a builder or as a consumer consuming it. And in between are all the different variations. So it, this almost leads next to, the, to, to, my, to my other point. In this post-COVID world, which thank, thankfully earlier we had the, um, the update from Sam, that we get back to some semblance of normality, at least formally, we have a whole lot of things to get through before we come back to a world resembling what we had before, which I don't personally think we will ever see in it the exact same way. What are the opportunities moving forward to differentiate through technology and customer experience was one of the, one of the um, questions that came through. But I think what, what Evan, Robert and Stuart have touched on is that knowing your, knowing your customer, responding to the needs and actually creating suitable products there are actually new categories being created. There might be subcategories, but the new categories being created. And I think it's not about us getting too hung up on what things used to be defined as and actually say that there's, there's new space, there's new ground being broken. So the very first thing I want to say is what are the opportunities moving forward to differentiate, to stand out and, um, in, this, in this market? So I'll start with you, Daryl. Yeah, so in terms of um, kind of opportunities and innovation, so I suppose for me, specifically with the funding thing, that COVID-19 was a, a bit of a kind of um, kick up the arse really to um, start get moving on, on lots of different things that are there to help us anyway, that as a lending community, we weren't making the most of. So one of the things that we did quite early doors was that we went out and we set up, set up um, automated valuation models, which are kind of, there's various different services out there, but they're kind of, algorithm and, and data-driven property valuations and, and began lending off of them. That stuff's not new, it's just no one was using it. And that obviously was forced on us because we couldn't get valuations, but equally, the long-term benefit of that will remain. So we've got no intention of dropping that style of valuing properties where it's suitable because it's quicker and it's cheaper. Um, but then I think the other um, sort of side of the coin is, is not just about can you get funding, it's more about should you get funding. And where's the right point to kind of pitch your leverage and things like this? And I do think we're in a period of, of change around kind of tenant demand. 
And I wonder how that affects the design of properties, particularly in, in kind of HMO and co-living actually, where, you know, is it now more important to have a garden? If it's um, sort of flatter schemes, is it more important to have a balcony? And I, I wonder then how that kind of repositions certain properties in the market is more or less attractive to tenants and then that, what that does to the numbers um, underneath it all. So for me, I think one of the big opportunities once we're kind of out of this initial kind of crisis management phase is figuring out where that tenant demand is going and then building the product that they want. Fantastic. So thanks, thanks a lot for that. So uh, build out what they want and, you know, find the product that suits it. So moving on to you, Evan. Unmuting myself again. Yeah, look, I think um, there's no doubt that, that COVID-19 is going to fundamentally change a lot of things. And I think one of the things that we are going to see in facilities where you have a large number of people sharing something is you're going to, you're going to see um, systems and processes and technology put into place to en enable people to distance from one another. Um, it's going to require a fundamental change in the way that hotels and apart hotels and co-living facilities and HMOs are designed. We're going to need to be thinking about how we build that stuff into, de into design going forward. Um, uh, and, and I think it will have a significant impact on a, a lot of players in the current market. I think the other thing that we may, we may well see um, is something of a cleaning out of um, the current players, particularly those who were more highly leveraged than others. Um, there has been talk about Travelodge uh, doing a CVA. Um, I think Premier Inn are in a quite a different position. They have something like 400 million pounds in cash um, and they own a lot of their hotels, whereas Travelodge were highly dependent on, on leases. So that's a, that's a comparison between two major players in the hotel industry in terms of their financial position, but it's a, it's perhaps a reflection of the the old Warren Buffett saying, which is which is um, it's not until you until the tide goes out that you see who's swimming naked. Um, but what what that is likely to cause is a bit of a cleaning out in the sector, and that will create opportunity for people who are coming in with new models who perhaps aren't quite so um, highly leveraged. So I think there's there's definitely going to be a change in the sector, and it will create opportunity for those who who come in with new innovative models, and particularly models that are geared around the way that um, we will now have to work economically and socially as a result of coronavirus. Fantastic. So thanks, thanks for that, Evan. I think it's a very interesting point. Um, later on, we will touch on sort of the impact on construction values, uh, stuff that's going into construction, and how that's actually going to impact sort of the build and the design. Uh, but first, I want to Put that same uh, question to to Robert. So, what what are the opportunities that you see in light of what's going on? Do you unmute him? I don't have that power. You should be unmuted. Um, I think obviously COVID is, is, has absolutely um, has really hit hospitality, like you know, um, no other right. industry really, um, and it is. Um, you know, it's going to have some serious repercussions for, for many, many years. I think Travelodge, um, as, as Evan pointed out, is going to be very potentially sort of one of the most high-profile um, businesses, which is going to be really severely hit and could enter a CVA for the second time. And, and you know, that, that model does sort of, um, you know, show itself at times like this. You know, I've, I've always got a very long-term view on things and hospitalities are a, hospitality hotels are a volatile industry and it's, you know, it's right when, when things are going well and you can ride the sort of the, the uptrend but it's in the downtrend where 
you know, you've, you've basically the businesses which are, you know, have strong fundamentals will be able to ride through that and see themselves for the next next cycle. And, you know, one advantage, a huge advantage, which a par hotel service department uh, extended stay model has over hotels uh, is the flex, well, it's the variance and the, and the sort of the spread of different types of uh, occupancy and tenure. So, you know, in a hotel, you are very reliant upon people who will stay for one, two, three nights, maybe. Um, hotels are designed for people who will stay on that short-term basis and you know from our own experiences you wouldn't want to live in a, in a hotel room for, for a week it just isn't comfortable you haven't got the facilities but you can do that when you have you know, a small kitchen or kitchenette uh, it gives you that option to stay for a week it's maybe a few weeks and maybe even a bit longer and you know the apart hotel model all of that basically has the ability to attract people who stay who want to stay for one or two three four nights on a leisure basis work or, or whatever but equally who can stay sort of you know uh, a few weeks and even a few months and that spread basically gives a huge amount of resilience to uh, the entire sort of income base uh, and so across cycles and across seasonal dips and and in you know, a part of through through the year um that basically has a much sort of um it's less is more resilient than, than a hotel uh, and it also means that during especially week times and i know we're going to come to this sort of topic in a minute but um especially week times right now you can try and pull in um quite low low, low rate but high occupancy business which is effectively someone who might live there for a low rate at, you know for, for 30 days and in this times right now hotels just cannot attract people to stay for any for any at any, at any price um and if you do attract someone it's probably going to be one or two three nights so you have a huge amount of void throughout the throughout the month so Effectively, you know, I think COVID is going to be showing up as effectively the traditional hotel model, which is um, targeting very small groups of people, leisure corporate, a huge market, but it's very short length of stay. Um, basically, just it sort of just um, you know, re-highlights how volatile this industry is. And you know, having a model where you can get a blend between short, medium, long stay, leisure corporate, and you can go after the entire market and then focus on different markets, different times of the cycle. Is, is huge amount you know of, of the flexibility there i think is is very very assuring for investors and, and um you know partners where you can see yourselves being there for the the, the entire cycle or the you know the duration of, of that um of that you know property um so yeah I, th I think you know the model strategically is one of the biggest opportunities um there's lots of little bits of piece of innovation how we how we how we adapt to this but um i think going forwards um this will become one of the biggest sort of lessons maybe um look back or one of the biggest strengths to take forward fantastic thank you very much robert and i, I think what was very interesting is actually having that income resilience which is an important thing in terms of the variation and the flexibility afforded by the particular model um i know a lot of people in the service accommodation uh, area started to look at looking at asds looking at trying to lengthen the time of the, the terms of stay, but it's one thing doing that, but it's also having the building to be able to cope with that, uh, having, having it built into the design. And I think that's one thing that probably Stuart will be able to say a lot more on. So Stuart, and just want you to take on board what you've heard so far and what your yeah. comments are. I mean, well, just touching on to the, um, the apart hotel side, there. so our hotels at the moment, I mean, we, we were hit very hard, just as Robert, Robert mentioned, you know, the, the massive impact on the, the sector. And luckily, we have all the kitchenettes and self-contained elements in there. That was good. But we very quickly, um, we got our operations team. We found everyone we could. And um, now we've got our hotel full of NHS workers. So actually, we're, we're, our, our room rate is less. Um, but then our cost overheads just completely, you know, we've just taken a whole chunk of our costs out of the way. And we're, we're now servicing um, NHS workers um, and key workers, which is, which is great. 
Um, but it was very stressful to start with because the, the bookings and the refunds just went off a cliff. So, um, yeah, we, we, we've modelled a, a, a longer-term impact and a, and, a, and, a, and a quite a gradual recovery back to full occupancy levels as we, as we should do. There may be a bounce back, of course, but, of course, you have to do it safely. Um, so, yeah, that was just the apart hotel side. So, on the kind of co-living side, um, I think what we're seeing is the – I mean, we – demand wise we're not seeing any impact on demand we've got a big backlog of people that want to get into our spaces um and, and not, a lot of that is driven by the fact that um and i'm, I'm glad Daryl mentioned it uh, because I, I forgot to clarify earlier on we we operate in one niche it's like a, a sub niche which is professionals so it's very high end it's professional uh, and we've created a kind of a, like this this product this clothing product has created this kind of like very um community driven uh, social um spaces uh, optimized product uh, and one of the things we've done as part of doing that is um, we've kind of got this price point so we've actually taken a lot of the learnings from the hotel sector where we have like a summer and winter rate so we're almost using a kind of form of dynamic pricing for our rooms so I guess the impact that we're going to see is we're we're estimating we might see a bit of impact on the way we, we do our room pricing but we're not we're not fit we're not we haven't got the fixed mindset of a a standard um, uh, landlord we, we think we always have dynamic room pricing anyway so that we can kind of work within that but the opportunities within within the kind of the, the co-living uh, sector and what we've been focusing on is first you've got the actual the spaces themselves so you've seen the photos of what of some of the stuff we do now a lot of the stuff we have um, developed over the years has had an emphasis on social spaces so we've got co-working, we've got dedicated co-working spaces, we've got barbecue zones, outside spaces, roof terraces, we've got breakout rooms. So there's not just one social space, many co-living, um, many of our co-living developments have got lots of breakout spaces. So in the context of this COVID scenario we're seeing now, many of our sites have got areas where people can go and, go and have private space. So obviously we're managing it in, in a way that people time, uh, have time bounded access to kitchens and breakout spaces and co-working. But that emphasis on creating those um, uh, social spaces and breakout spaces and exterior spaces obviously makes that a much more attractive um, option right now for renting, for example, a grotty HMO with just one lounge and nothing else there. So. So there's big opportunity there to create um, houses that are not only desirable to the to the customer, but equally they 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 help us in this scenario now as well. Also, the last part I'd like to add is customer experience. A lot of people think that if you create a great product, that's enough. You've got to have an awesome customer experience as well. Because what we've done is we've focused on the whole customer journey. So that's everything from the technology behind the scenes to how seamless it is for you, just just as you would do in the short stay market how seamlessly the technology can get you checked in, how you can be onboarded, how you can use technology to report any issues, how you can kind of um, find out or move between any other co-living kind of sites around, around the city. So all of those things on customer experience, the whole customer journey, um, you know, I, I see personally, I see, you know, we, we created these amazing spaces, but customer experience is like the next battleground. Fantastic, Sue, and I think you covered even a few of the future, the future questions that I, I did really want to ask was exactly how you're faring, how your spaces have, have actually coped in this, what you're looking at in future demand, and where you see the opportunities. And I just 
wanted you to just quickly touch on something as I'll take it through the rest of the, uh, of the panelists. And actually that's the impact of implementing COVID safe policies for your managed co-living and for you know, people who've still got sites in construction or, or coming up or future schemes, how COVID is actually affecting what you're going to be doing moving forward or if it's not okay. having any effect and if that well, has an impact on costs and viability. Yeah, I mean, obviously, project, so. this is all quite new at the moment. And so only, yeah. only at the end of last week, I, I spent a lot, of, a lot of time working on doing our risk assessments and creating our policies. So the government has released a whole load of information related regarding, uh, you know, shared living. What you, you know, work, I think there's a, a policy document about working in other people's houses and a few other documents. We've collated all of that, we've taken all of that, and we've created, used our risk assessment, created all of our policies, and that's created our kind of COVID secure kind of um, business policy, as you like. And, you know, it did take a while, but, you know, all of those documentation, it's all out there. If people want to um, message me, I can send them links to that. Um, but, yeah, what okay. we have to do is we have to have that, that, that policy. You've got to have that policy in place to safely send people out so that you can have virtual viewings, you can check people in. You, you, you're doing all the correct measures that you have to do with onboarding, uh, sorry, new, new lettings, onboarding people in, check-ins, maintenance, uh, essential or, or routine, and ongoing. So we had to get all of those in place um, as soon as the government Fantastic, released Stuart. documents. So Stuart, if you could just pop your email address in the box so people can contact you further. So I'm going to go to Robert next on that same question. And um, if you could fire away. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously a whole raft of uh, uh, government advice which we should be following. Um, some of it being um, advice and some of it, you know, being sort of essential stuff. Um, you know, I think as a business owner, we, no matter what the business is, we all have responsibility to our teams and to our clients to basically protect them. And I think that's the minimum that we should be focusing, minimum which we should be sort of looking to do uh, anyway. Um, so there's, there's a whole raft. I mean, I don't think we need to you know, Listed all out, but there there is lots of bits and pieces, the little things which will go and give people, um, staff or, or clients, uh, basically the reassurance and the peace of mind that they actually they feel safe in, in your your buildings. And um, you know, it's about trying to reassure people during these times. And we, we're about to start sort of a campaign of, of effectively communicating across all platforms, all social media and emails and whatnot, um, through to effectively show how we, in in a branded way, are basically tackling this to give people the Second COVID and making making sure that they feel safe with us and and the sort of the ten steps which we're doing not just sort of the the, the list of of stuff which is sort of you, we can, we can read and we'll see you know in, in every store but um stuff which actually engages them and actually gives them that peace of mind showing them that you know, as as a brand room two has gone above other people in the sense um so that they feel reassured and um you know uh, and will choose to come with us during uh you know, times which will otherwise be um could be quite generally quite weak demand so we're just trying to. Yeah. give people peace of mind and, and I'm sure you'll be able to do that. Thank you, Robert. And uh, Evan? So I think my, my take on this is probably more about development sites. Um, I think it is going to be much more of a challenge building on uh, tight, tight city centre sites where you've got a lot of people crammed into smaller spaces and that may well have an impact on, uh, on, on, the, on the speed at which such sites can be developed. The sites that we're developing at the moment out in Gloucestershire, while COVID has slowed us down, that's more to do with supply chain issues than anything else because we can set things up so that people can work in separate houses um, while um, and, and, and the, the project can continue 
um, without people being too close to one another. I think it is likely to see um, a more of a focus on uh, technologies like modular construction where you don't necessarily have people on site in close proximity to one, one another. You can manufacture the stuff off site and, and, and drop it onto um, an existing foundation say that's been built. Um, but I do think we are going to see um, focus on a couple of things. One is going to be ventilation systems. Um, clearly people are going to be worried about um, uh, viruses like coronavirus traveling through a building or through um, an existing um, you know, air system, and and I think we're going to see a lot of lot more focus on um, systems that are designed to keep air free of um, any infection or viruses. And I think the other thing that's really interesting is there does seem to have been a link uh, established between pollution levels and the spread of um, coronavirus, and so I think that that's likely to drive a much bigger focus on sustainability, which is something that we we were focusing on anyway because for a whole host of reasons, because it's the right thing to do, but also because actually if you get it right, you can make it work economically. And so things like solar panels, ground source heating, um, battery systems to make buildings as sustainable as possible. We think on our Clapham Road project, we can achieve something like a 92% reduction in energy usage as a result of sustainable technologies. And that has a huge financial impact on the um, viability of the project from the tenant's point of view and from our point of view. So I think those sorts of things are going to come more and more to the fore as a result of this. Fantastic, Gavin. And uh, Daryl, I just wanted you to have a comment on that. Yeah, so I think from a, from a finance perspective, I spent a lot of time talking to people about um, almost kind of problem solving is probably the right phrase for, for deals they're in at the moment. And I feel quite passionately about this. That it's, it's really important not to tread water with your finance relationships right now and, and put them on a a sound and stable footing for the next kind of 12, 18 months. And, and the reason I think that's so important is that if you're busy sort of fighting fires on, on previous deals, then you're more likely to miss out on the buying opportunities that are to come because you'll be distracted with what's going on behind you rather than looking at the opportunities ahead. And I do believe that perhaps not right now, but in three, six months time, this will be the best buying opportunity for at least a decade, much like 09, 10 was um, after the, the <clears throat> So it's really important to make sure that you're well positioned to be able to go and spend your time growing your business and not kind of firefighting on, on, on stuff that was happening before. And generally, I kind of say that that falls into two camps based on kind of most of the conversations we're having at the moment. So if you're in a development site, your considerations are, you know, if you're mid build, once you've got over the logistical parts about carrying on, your consideration is really around how, how strong is that lending partner that you've got in? Are they still lending? Are they still honoring their drawdowns? The majority of the market is, but there are some lenders who are not. So the peer-to-peer -peer lenders, for example, have been affected quite badly by this because retail investors who provide the funding in that space are the first to generally kind of leave the market at the sign of difficulties because they don't need to be in, basically. They're just doing it to try and earn a little bit of extra, extra interest compared to a savings account, which is very different to a bank or a, or a professional lender. If you're just coming to the end of a development um, project, I think it's really important to be checking what your contractual terms are with your lender. So when does that loan need to be repaid by? If you know now that you can't repay it on time, and, and there'll be lots of people in that situation, because if you've lost two or three months of build time, or even you've lost two or three months of marketing and sales time, you know, development facilities are normally quite tight on time in general that is going to have a knock-on impact. So if you know now that that loan can't be paid back on time, check where you stand. So if you overrun, what are the financial penalties to you in terms of interest and fees? 
and engage with those lenders early. And my biggest kind of piece of advice on that as someone who, who refinances some of these loans is go to that lender with a bit of a plan. You know, everyone knows the challenges that the developers have faced during this period. We're all sympathetic to that. But it's about kind of saying, well, look, this is what we need to fix it. This is how we get going again. This is what the new timescales look like. And, and lenders will buy into that. And if your current lender doesn't buy into that, then someone else will, will refinance. And we've done some refinancing already of others that have kind of decided not to lend. And then even on the buy to let side, so you could think that with mortgages, once you've taken your mortgage holiday, if you need it, you're, you're kind of sorted. But I don't think you are. So there's a bit of uncertainty around what's going to happen to property values in general in the next kind of six, 12, 18 months. So you can ride the wave and see what happens because it, it might uh, fall in your favour. Or what I've been trying to persuade a lot of my clients to do is, is go and refinance now. So anything where you know that mortgage or that fixed rate is expiring in the next year, go and do it now. Just get it on a new five-year deal, tuck it away. Might not be the optimal deal, probably won't be right now, but it's security and it's stability and you know that you're not going to be forced to refinance um, by product ending at the very worst moment in time. You, don't, you, you take that risk out of the business and you then decide when you want to refinance. And ultimately, if it means you you take you know a lower loan amount or a lower loan to value now than you normally take, if it works for the business and you can trade, I see it as a win. And then when the market recovers, you know whether that's 12, 18, 24 months, there'll be plenty of opportunities to pull that cash back out of that deal. But the worst thing you can do, I think, is roll the dice on um, mortgages expiring in a period of time where you might find that your property is falling in value if things don't go the way that we all hope. Fantastic. So thank you, Daryl. I think, Daryl, one, one of the key things I get coming from all the panellists has been sort of your resilience, resilience on, your, on your income. And that's obviously spreading your risk. Actually building in a future proofing into your design from environmentally uh, looking at staff to technology and also looking at the business model and over the long term. So do you have over, over lever are you over leveraged? In your operations are you efficient in your operations and how are you looking at your the way you actually conduct your business in terms of your communication with your customers for reassurance and in terms of the safety of your staff now as we're coming up to the end of the panel i, ju I just really want to ask um you to put a crystal ball time or if there's something that you do want to communicate around what your opportunities are what you're doing and something about your business if people want to uh learn a little bit more i'm actually going to start with Evan. And then I'm going to go to Robert, then I'm going to go back to Daryl and Stuart, just trying to be a bit funky. Okay, well, I think what I would say is that um, I don't see the world um, in, in quite the same way as, as Daryl does, um, having been through the global financial crisis and had, having been in the middle of developments, actually, when the uh, global financial crisis hit um, and managed to get through, um, although it was a very difficult time, I don't see this particular sequence of, of events of ha is having a lot in common with it. Um, that was primarily a liquidity crisis. There isn't a liquidity crisis at the moment. Lenders are still lending. In fact, lending products seem to be coming back now. Um, the, the lenders who withdrew mainly were, um, or reduced their um, buy, loan to values with mainly buy to let lenders. Um, the development lenders have if they're not wholesale funded, have generally continued to lend. They've pulled back their loan to GDVs a little bit. But um, there's a lot of money out there. Um, people are holding back because of uncertainty. Um, the, the fact is that in the US and here, in fact, all around the world, 
governments have introduced measures to create greater liquidity. And so we're not seeing any kind of crash crunch or, or cash crunch or credit crunch. Um, what we're seeing is a reduction in activity. And I, my, my belief is that we'll see a very sharp bounce back once things start to return to normal. To normal. The feeling that we get from people out there is that they want to do things and they want to get on with things. So I don't think this is going to be the same kind of outcome in any way as, as the global financial crisis. I mean, everyone will make their own mind up about that particular point. Um, second thing, though, I think is in terms of um, development uh, lending, and I'm just really talking about our experience here, um, we have found that, that lenders in general have been very understanding during this period of time. And so um, they've proactively offered to extend facilities for us. Um, they realize that there's not a lot that we can do about COVID. Um, and so we've found that lenders have generally been very um, understanding about the whole situation. And so I do, I do think my, my biggest concern is um, what impact this is likely to have on the speed at which sales can take place in developments. And I suppose the key thing is, um, as always in business, have a fallback plan if, if your, your plan A doesn't work. But um, I, don't, I, I, do, I do think that um, now is the time to be um, keeping an eye on opportunities and being ready to jump when things are looking like they're gonna spring back. I think, I think what we are gonna see is a change in the shape of opportunities. So the opportunities that existed before coronavirus are not gonna be the same as the opportunities that exist now. Things have shifted. You know, this, it's accelerated the shift towards online retail because everybody has had to do online shopping. Um, it will accelerate the shift towards um, sustainability. Um, it will accelerate a shift towards a, a, maybe a, a different um, form of um, hospitality and, and use of the travel sector. But those things won't go away. They'll just they'll sh they'll shift in different ways. We'll be using technology more, um, and I think it's I, I, and I think that the extent to which the crisis has forced people to do that means we probably won't roll it back. We'll probably see a reduction in demand for large static offices. That in turn may translate into a, an increase in, de in demand for co-working. So I think, I think the, the answer here is things will shift quickly. Think in the directions that they were shifting in already, they'll shift a lot quicker in ways that are driven by the, um, the things that, 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 that push a change in, in business and social behavior, economic and social behavior. Fantastic. So, Evan, just to, to summarise, is this whole thing will have a catalytic effect on some of the trends that we're seeing, and um, the the fundamentals will remain, but just in a different form. I think that's really useful. So, Robert, yeah. same question to you. Crystal ball gazing forward. Um, I, I am not sort of optimist, but I, I'm a little bit concerned about the sort of the, the, the wider situation. I think every every week that goes by, um, this situa situation has sort of developed and escalated, and and ultimately, the sort of the recovery period has become less V, less U, and sort of closer to sort of an L. And sort of, you know, the, the bounce back is is definitely um, stretched further, further away. So, what worries me? I mean, I think liquidity is obviously um, not necessarily an issue right now, though it, it, it may become an issue in, in a number of months' time if, if more liquidity isn't pumped in. Um, and you know, this pressures is going to put on governments and, and um, corporations from the additional debt that's taken on. Um, that is def deferring a problem, um, but ultimately, right now we, we are experiencing you know significant uh, unemployment, whether you whether the individuals are furloughed or not, over in the states, which is the engine engine of the world, 
Um, they're seeing record um, unemployment numbers every single week um, by massive scales. And what, what worries me is that every month or week that goes on, businesses um, at all levels are basically going to become more vulnerable to basically going totally out of business. Um, and the more businesses that go out of business, um, the less employment there will be and less of that rebounds there will be. And so there will, in my view, be um, many, many scars across leisure, hospitality, travel, tourism, and other sectors as well, um, where the businesses in, and parts of that, those economies, those sectors don't recover. Uh, and if they don't recover, then you've got significant unemployment in those. And therefore, you know, you're, you're not talking, it doesn't take very much to tip a ballot to a different economy um, between growth and, and recession. You know, a small 2 or 3% variance here either, either way means we could be in a recession for, for many, many years. Uh, or many years, I don't want to dramatize it, but, but you know, for, for a more extended period than maybe what people like to hope right now and just purely because of the, the significance of the impact right now you know, there are businesses going to the wall um, and increasing rate really so I, I'm concerned that things won't recover as quick and I, I was hoping that at, at the very beginning um, but obviously you know during these recessions the recession is a typical cyclical event um, they always cause something slightly different each time but uh, we will recover and we will bounce back and what it does do is it absolutely prevents a, um, or presents a huge amount of opportunity for people who have their you know their you know uh, eyes up looking looking outward and um you know, I, th I think it's about this is right now is the time to get our house in order, make sure our businesses are strong, make sure our brands are you know, prepared for the direction we want to go and really get those fundamentals absolutely locked down. So when the time does come, um, when opportunities are there and we, we, we can see sort of a you know, true light in the tunnel, then it's about then pouncing and, and being you know, as aggressive as one would like. Um, you know, if you want to be aggressive in time of business, I think this, is, this, this phase right now, this will be, will be right now. Um, and to capitalize on that increased liquidity that does come into the market because what that does do is it drives, does drive asset prices up and straight after 2008 um, or during 2008 that financial crisis and uh, the money that was pumped into the market effectively quantitative easing just had an impact on, on asset prices and you can see how you know, asset prices and valuations going up and up and up and that's exactly what's happening right now take two three years maybe for it to filter through that those holding assets those holding businesses and will, will basically um benefit in you know a little bit down the road so i think it's about just fundamentally getting the business fundamentals there and, and then um and then really you know, put the foot to the floor fantastic so i mean i mean robert your t your take is get the fundamentals in order there are a few worrying signs but ultimately um, the stronger you are, the more you'll be able to ride out and actually prosper into the future. So this, I'm, I'm coming on to Stuart. We've, we've got about three to, to, to four minutes. And I also want to add a couple of things to your plate. Uh, number one, it, there was a question we got from uh, Richie and he was talking about and whether we could, whether I can actually find the question, which I can't find. But before that, there was a question about, given so many office space employees are working from home now, a lot of house share demand is from those people working away from home. What impact do you think this will have on the market if a proportion of employees decide to relocate as they're not restricted by location? I know this touches into the co-share, but I just wanted you to use your crystal ball to see if uh, this is something that comes into your answers. And the second question I want to lead you, with you, Stuart, is uh, read the planning and the number of persons rule for co-living do they differ from those of an HMO, of an HMO? I know you actively do HMOs in both. So these are why these are two additional questions on your plate. So Stuart. Um, well, I, know, I know that Evan has some other uh, kind of thoughts on the planning side. Um, but 
but but in the way that we're operating on the scale of the sub 20 unit developments that we do we are operating within the you know the planning classes of hmos so whether that's small ones whether that's clusters whether that's micro hmos whether that is um sewer generis mixed use we do mixed use schemes we do sewer generis schemes so yeah so we we still operate within the remit of the hmo um uh, planning classes for all of our developments so hopefully that, that answers that one um, where do we see some impact? Um, I guess crystal ball. I mean, I have estimated seeing some kind of impact on the top end rents. So, um, like I say, we operate a dynamic pricing anyway. So, uh, you know, all of the developments we do um, are very high cash flowing, uh, high return properties. So, even if we we've got tolerance in there. Now, if you were over leveraged and your rents weren't great and you weren't you didn't have a great product and you didn't have great tenant demand, I would be concerned for that. Fortunately, you know, we've, we've invested from the start in making sure we have the best product on the market, which has the best social spaces, the co-working, the breakout rooms, so that even in, in, in during these COVID times, it's still the best product on the market. Not only that, one thing I would factor in is also that you're going to see a lot of people coming from one bed flats and studios plus bills that are going to be looking for more affordable options than there. We already, we already saw that as a trend anyway, but I think we'll see that more. Uh, other opportunities, I do agree, it's going to be an amazing buying time coming up. And um, so I, I agree with Daryl on that respect. And what we're doing is we're gearing up to um, almost shift into more of a kind of land site acquisition uh, side of our business. So we're going to, we're diversifying by providing some portfolio building for other uh, investors. But, but the engine of it is effectively a land and site acquisitions. So, and so I do agree with Daryl that there's some massive opportunities there because you'll be able to pick up some very good deals in the next kind of 12 to 18 months. Um, and then, yeah, what other stuff we'll be doing. So I see opportunities in hybrid developments, whereas before we might have been quite strict about the kind of developments we were doing. I think the right kind of site, the right opportunity um, and diversification within that site. So we have a number of mixed use sites where we have co-living, but we also have uh, self-contained apartments as well. Uh, and then we have small little office space within that. Some of those developments have got resilience within them because of course, if someone move, uh, meets someone, they settle down, they can move into a self-contained uh, apartment as well, all within, so we can cover all parts of the customer journey. So I see that as being um, quite an interesting area for us. And finally, just touching on what I mentioned before, you know, um, when people are going out there and they're choosing and you've got any fluctuation in customer demand, because at the end of the day, we've got products and we've got customers and there's customer demand. Um, I think it's about experience. At the end of the day, a lot of our new business, if you like, new customers comes to us from referrals. So that's when your own customers are queuing up to buy from you and then they're recommending you to their friends and colleagues. So that when we launch a co-living project, it's already full. And then, of course, we have recommendations and they become absolutely vital in times like this when we've got, for example, COVID and everything else. Fantastic, Stuart. I think, I mean, we could have gone on for a lot uh, longer. I just want to thank all the panelists. I think three key things to take away is the experience, um, resilience and future proofing. So the customer experience, resilience in your business and in your model and future proofing in terms of looking at the environment and looking at sustainability and where the puck is going. So please, if we could put a virtual uh, hand together for all our panelists, uh, put, uh, put them in. It's a COVID safe, make sure your hands are washed. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm bringing Brendan back in, who's made a different entrance. And so, Brendan, do you want to take it from there? Thanks again to all the, all the panellists. Thank you. Okay. 
I, I can't see myself on screen, Aaron, at the minute. Uh, I, I take it I'm on screen somehow. Yes, yes, I can see you. Okay. Look, a um, couple things. So massive thanks, Aaron, for being on board this morning. Um, also, next week, I'll go into a little, little bit more detail when I can get the slides up. Jack, is it possible to share the slides? Jack's going to be on the panel next week. Have you? I, I can't seem to get the slides on my computer. Oh, brilliant. Can we go from beginning? So, look, lovely slides, but I couldn't get them up. Brilliant. Jack, if we can go one slide forward. Okay, so register for next uh, Brendan's Property Brunch. It's focused on trading. So, Jack is on the panel, Jay, Jig uh, Jay Howard, uh, Ross Harper, and uh, Daryl Nork. Aaron is laughing. Um, Jack, if you go one more slide forward. So the focus is on trading, but as you can see, the influence of uh, COVID-19, how it's really changed the picture. If we go one more slide, so it's Monday. So next Monday, we're back on Monday. I haven't confirmed what Monday the 1st of June will be about. So look, you're, you're um, welcome to give feedback on who you'd like to hear from, topic-wise as well. So I've mentioned Daryl, I've mentioned Jay, Jack, uh, Ross Harper, delighted he's going to be on board. And that's the joys of virtual meets is uh, for me to get Ross to a, a Monday morning meet would be quite difficult. So massive, massive thanks for Ross being on board. Now, uh, going forward to one slide. There should be at least one more slide. Okay, this, this is just, uh, we, we move on, Jack, uh, if we possibly can. So that's just um, a move on, Jack. That's about today's session. Um, and if we move on, I think that's it. Just a, just a little bit more. Just uh, go forward, Jack. A few more slides. Should be one. Yep. Uh, we've done that. If we can just go uh, one more slide. That's the podcast. Um, Jack's favorite podcast, I hope it is. Um, so um, that's a fantastic interview. Evan's podcast was released yesterday. Uh, Stuart, we're into the uh, over 50 episodes so far. Um, if we can just go forward, Jack, once more. Yes, it's on iTunes. Sponsors including Ronald Fletcher Baker. Um, future plans. No, no, you can go forward. Uh, there, there. We've managed to get this. Grace, do you want to say anything about this slide? You can come off mute. How do I unmute myself? Yeah, you can. Hi. Hi, um, hi. Who who is hi. Sam Loney? Because everyone yes. knows who you are, Grace, or most people. Um, lots of people know who Kunli is, but Sam, sort of like Enigma, you could say he's not as known as yourself. I'll tell him that. Um, Sam is head of origination at Hilltop Credit Partners, which is a uh, development finance um, lender, and they do quite. Um, uh, yeah, Stretch Senior uh, funding, and he's also a property uh, investor and host of uh, Property People, which is a YouTube channel. So he'll be on board um, along with Ashley Richmond, who I don't know particularly well, and then obviously Quinley's back by popular demand because mm. um, he had a lot of design questions last Friday or the Friday before, didn't he? Yeah, so I have to be careful yeah. what I say because Evan's listening to, to what I'm saying. Quinley is part of Evan's company. Uh, he's head of design and delivery. Mm -hmm. He's sort of like a coop, um, Kunli, uh, amazing um, 
person. Uh, he's behind Grand Designs curator as well. Look, Ashley, um, I've heard so much about him only since the beginning of this year. Me and Aaron were on a call with him. Patsy organized it, in fact, massive thanks. And I was amazed, Patsy Richardson, I was amazed about his knowledge. Did a podcast interview. I just really like his ideas. He, he, he's got ideas I've never heard of before. Um, they may not be his, but that's what he's learning from. So I don't want to go into too much detail about some of the suggestions he said on the call, which Aaron and myself were on. But, you know, he, he goes back a long way. But thank um, to Ashley. So brand new, apart from on my podcast. I don't think he's on many podcasts. He should be, really. Um, look, Jack doesn't want me to take too much more time. Aaron doesn't. So uh, Thursday, 25th June, put that date in your diary. It's an evening event. It's a traditional day. With the lockdown softening, I have to refine the agenda. I do understand. Um, we're going to have an evening event on the 25th. I think that's virtual. I don't think it's going to be in a room because I don't think it's going to be open. Jack, any more slides? That's it. That's it. Brilliant. Um, look, Aaron, can we do a screenshot so I can just do a promo uh, online? Um, hopefully my video is there. If not, don't worry about that. But Milan, Will, Ranjit, don't you want to show Property Investor News? Uh, Kate, Andrew, uh, Richard, not being, I'd encourage you to. I think, Brilliant. I think what's missing is a request, Brendan. So please, can you just turn on your videos for the screenshot? Uh, for the for the screenshot, you know, just um, do all the pouting and everything else for Brendan to take this lovely picture. So Even just, though I'm uh, not in it for some bizarre reason. You'll come. Don't worry, Brendan. Good things come to those that wait. Okay. I, I think we're going to go, Aaron, because otherwise it would take a little bit too long. So, Aaron, is there anything to do before I invite the breakout rooms to start? No, I just want to say again, thank you to all our panellists and thank you for all of you for, for being on board. Uh, I will be posting in the, in the chat box just contact details for the panellists if you want to learn more. Obviously, this is going to be available and on Brendan's uh, podcast. And now we go into the breakout rooms. Make sure you've allocated your so massive thanks to Aaron Yahara who chaired this particular panel on the 18th of May. If you want to join us, find out more about the events which I organize through my website, which is bequinnevents.com.